welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, uh, as this text says that your son Jesus is worthy of more glory and honor, Lord, we pray that that would happen this morning, um, even if it's, we've seen it happen in our time of worship so far, we pray, Lord, that we would see his glory, your glory, as we open your word, as we take communion, Lord, we, we pray that we would sense a manifestation of his glory, and uh, Lord, that we'd be fed on that. Lord, we were made to enjoy your glory. We were made to enjoy you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would, even now, for, for us who have come in with maybe not quite as ready for this, Lord, that you would give us uh, new spiritual taste buds to taste the glory of God, and that you would show us your glory, that you would feed us on yourself. And we pray this as something that only you can do. This is not something within our power whatsoever, and yet you're so faithful to do it for us, Lord. Uh, glorify your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, as you can see, we're in Hebrews 3. It's not necessarily a Mother's Day kind of thing. I do want to thank you, mothers. I was reminded of uh, 20 years ago, the most epic Mother's Day sermon I ever heard. And it was that passage from Kings where those kids are harassing Elijah. And they're saying, like, a bunch of kids are following the prophet Elijah, and they're like, go up, bald man, go up, bald man. And Elijah turns around, and he curses them, and two bears come out and maul all the kids. I kid you not, my wife's here to, like, testify. That was the sermon reading, the scripture reading for the sermon. And I can't remember for the life of me what he did with that passage, but it was on Mother's Day, and it was unbelievable. Someday, maybe. If I could find the notes and see what he did with it. Would you guys like that? Okay. I can't make any promises, but I'm going to dig into it and see. Isn't that crazy? I was like, okay, he's going to do this. Like, this is... This is happening right now. Guys, this morning we're in Hebrews, and we're, we're at the second command in Hebrews. And what's really amazing about the book of Hebrews is its very structure tells us something about how we relate to God as our Father, as we relate to Him as His kids. And we can see it in the way He plants the commands in this book. And they're planted after the gospel, after huge stretches of hearing the gospel. And what this tells us, guys, it tells us our obedience to God is a response to his grace. Amen? We don't obey God in a way to gain his love. We obey God because we already have his love, right? All other religions say something like, obey and you'll be accepted by God. Whereas the gospel says, you are accepted in Christ, now obey. It's a totally different way of living. It's a totally different reason for obedience. That we've been loved so greatly and we receive so much grace from him that we want to obey. And you can see it even from the layout of Hebrews. Take a look at your, uh, and it's good if you open it. Take a look at chapter 1 and what you'll see is chapter 1 is just all about Jesus and what he's done for us. It's all gospel, that first whole chapter. And then the beginning of chapter 2, there's a command, right? And then the rest of chapter 2 is all just unpacking the gospel. And then now we're going to have this next second command. Isn't that amazing? You know, it's always a response to what he's done to us. It's, it's gratitude for the, for the grace of God and the gospel. It's not a way that we do these commands to try and earn favor, but we already have his favor in Christ, and now we delight to do as well. And even before he gives us this command, which is in Hebrews 3.1, 
He wants to remind us yet again who we are in Christ. So who are you this morning? Take a look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. I read it that way, by the way, because in the Greek, it's Adelphos. And you'll see if you have an ESV, it's, a little, it's got a little note that says that it's, it's not just brothers, it's brothers and sisters. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who are called in a heavenly calling. If you're a Christian this morning, that's who you are. You're holy. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're holy. You're not just becoming holy. You are holy in his sight. You might say, well, I don't really feel holy. But guys, this isn't about your feelings. This is about reality. And if you're in Christ, you're holy because you are wrapped in the holiness of Jesus. You're also holy because you've been set apart for him, by him, to do his will in this world. You're holy. You're also a brother or sister, it says in this text. Whose brother and whose sister? Yeah, we know from chapter 2, verse 11, you're Jesus's brother or sister. That's your identity. You're Jesus's brother or sister, and you have a heavenly calling. We see that in verse 1, who's sharing a heavenly calling. We're going to see a little bit later in Hebrews that, that there's this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. It's in heaven right now. There's this heavenly city. All the people who have trusted in Christ, who have gone before us, all those from the Old Testament, all those from the New Testament times, and all the way up until today are already dwelling in this city. King Jesus is king over this city, and Revelation 21 says one day that city's going to come down out of heaven from God, and the whole world's going to become new. And you're called to that. If you're a Christian this morning, that's who you are. You're a holy brother or sister of Jesus who God has called to heaven. It's a great starting place, right? Now, what's the command? The command's really great. Look at the command. What is it? Consider Jesus. Isn't that a great command? Consider Jesus. That's the one command in our text this morning, and it's really the one great command in all of Hebrews. As you go through, there's different iterations of consider Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, pay much closer attention to what we have heard about Jesus. You know, the command is over and over again, focus, focus on Jesus, look at him. You're like, I did look at him. Look at him again, you know? That's what we need. There's a Scottish minister, Robert Murray McChain. He lived, I think, in the 1800s. And he had this saying that I think is so important. A lot of you guys probably need to write this down this morning. What he said is, take 10 looks at Jesus for every look at yourself. Think about that. What's your ratio been this week? Take 10 looks at Jesus for every look at yourself. How many of you guys owe about 100 looks to Jesus this week? You're like way imbalanced. That should be your ratio. Take 10 looks at Jesus for every look at yourself. And that's what the book of Hebrews says. It says, consider Jesus. What do we consider? Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, some of you, when you read that, you're like, wait a minute, I'm confused. Is Jesus one of the apostles? What's going on here? Apostle means sent one. The 12 apostles were Jesus' sent ones. But Jesus was the Father's sent one. In John 20, he said this, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, apostle language, even so I'm sending you, the apostles. Jesus is that ultimate apostle. Jesus is that ultimate representative from the Father. Remember the beginning of Hebrews? It says, he says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the ultimate representative of God to man, being both God and man. So he's an apostle. He's God, you know, God sent him to us to represent himself. And he's also a high priest. Now that works in the opposite direction. You guys may not have noticed that. Apostle is sent from God to the people, to us. A high priest is sent from the people back to God, right? 
as a, an apostle, Jesus was sent to reveal God to us, and now as a uh, high priest, he's gone back to the Father to represent us. You remember in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would bring a sacrifice of blood, and then he would have that breastplate on his chest that had stones of all the different tribes of Israel, right? He's representing them. He's being their representative in the holy place. Jesus is that for us. He is that high priest for us. So as an apostle, he's sent out to represent God to us. As a high priest, he's sent back to God to represent us there. And he does so in a way that's greater than Moses. You guys might be a little bit thrown off by this, like why compare Jesus to Moses? The reason here it makes a lot of sense is that Moses in the Old Testament had the closest role to Jesus in the Old Testament. Remember, Moses would do both of those things. He revealed God to the people. He would come out of the tent of meeting and he'd say, hey, here's what God says. He would be a representative for God. And then with the people, he would, as you read this morning, he would go back to God and he would represent the people in front of God. He did both of those roles. And Moses, guys, was just such a big deal in the Old Testament time and in in Judaism, even at the time of this letter. It's hard to even overstate his huge role. You guys remember in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron were like, why are you such a big deal? Like, God speaks through us too. You remember what happened? God came down. He said, hey, you three, come here. And he met up with them and he said this. He said, hear my words, is what the Lord said. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. And he says this, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Just like Hebrews. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then, of course, he makes him leprous, and, and they were really upset, and he was like, yeah, they'll be fine, you know, we'll heal him. It's impossible, guys, to exaggerate the role of Moses in the Old Testament. I mean, even at the time this book was written, and, and remember the context of this book, this was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to return to Judaism. They were tempted to return to Judaism because in the Roman Empire at that time, Judaism wasn't persecuted. Christianity was. So they had left Judaism. They're following Jesus. They get all this persecution. And the temptation is just to go back to Judaism, to, to kind of go back to Moses, right? And he says, Jesus is better than Moses. Look at verse 2. Jesus was, a, was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over all. God's house as a son. So what's he doing here? He's using this image of a house, okay? So you got a house, and he's using this image of a house to be all of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way up to this day, all in one house. And the word house can be used in two senses, right? It can be used as a building. It can also be used as a group of people, like the house of Gryffindor, right? They're not talking about the building they're living in. They're talking about the people, right? So what he's using is he's using this idea of a house as a metaphor for all God's people. All God's people that Jesus is assembling throughout redemptive history. You got it? And he's saying that Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses was just a part of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house, right? 
And, and there's a really cool thing going on here in him talking about Jesus' pre-existence, right? Because if Moses is a part of the house and Jesus is the builder of the house, and Moses lived a really long time before Jesus came, what does that say? It talks about Jesus' pre-existence, that he is the founder of this house. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the one who's building this house. He also says that Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son of the house. Son of the house being the owner, the heir. He is the one who owns the house. He's the builder and owner of this house that Moses was just a servant in. But this text does some other cool things. It, it also shows us the unity of Scripture. Unity of Scripture is seen in this one house. The unity of Moses and, and Jesus a lot of times people try to pit Jesus and Moses against each other. And Moses did this thing, Jesus is doing this thing, as if they're like two different religions or two different, you know, totally two different houses, right? But guys, it says here that Moses was faithful in all God's house, house that Jesus is building. The Pharisees tried to do this when they, remember, they accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath, right? When he was healing on the Sabbath, and, and he explained that he wasn't actually violating the Sabbath. But there's a complete unity, guys, between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. It says in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house. Everything Moses taught added in some way to this house that Jesus is building. Jesus is building a house actually through Moses. Uh, Moses did this in a few ways. Look at verse 5. It says that he was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Then what does it say? To testify to the things that would be spoken of later. So one of the ways that Moses was faithful to kind of build this one house that Jesus is building is by writing the first five books of the Bible, right? He writes the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah. Think of all the history that, that Moses wrote in there, things that actually happened. Think of how all those things pointed to Jesus. And, you know, as you, as you read through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, as you read through these books, Think of how all of those things that Moses recorded in those books point to Jesus. That real history pointing to Jesus. He was testifying to the things that would be spoken of later. Think of the history of Adam. Adam testifies to Jesus, right? In that he passed the test and gave us the garden back. Abel testifies to Jesus, whose blood cries out for our salvation. The story of Noah's Ark testifies to Jesus, right? That we're safe in him and protected from the waves of God's justice. Melchizedek testifies to Jesus, the true priest king. Remember Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending? Jacob's ladder actually testifies to Jesus, who's the true bridge between heaven and earth. Um, Isaac testifies to Jesus, who was offered by his father on the mountain, right? Joseph testifies to Jesus, who was betrayed by his brothers and then later exalted and saves them, right? Moses testifies to Jesus in leading the people out of slavery to the true promised land. The, the Passover lamb testifies to Jesus, whose blood covers us and protects us from the wrath of God. The pillar of fire, right, testifies to Jesus. Jesus said, he is the light of the world who guides his people. The manna testified to Jesus. Jesus said, he is the bread of life who comes down from heaven. Um, the rock that Moses struck testifies to Jesus, who was struck in the wilderness and wounded so that we could have living water. The bronze serpent testifies to Jesus as the, that bronze servant was lifted up in the wilderness to, to heal anybody who has been bit by the serpent. Isn't that amazing? It goes on and on. I could keep going. It says, verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. 
So in all those things, he's testifying to Jesus. He's building God's house by, by putting forth expectations of who this Messiah would be. And he did it through the law, too. The law that he gave actually was a way in which he not only points to our need for Christ, but also showed us Christ. Think about the laws concerning the tabernacle. Like The laws concerning the tabernacle point to Jesus in the sense that Jesus is the true dwelling place of God with man. The laws concerning the priests, that Jesus is our perfect mediator. The laws concerning the sacrifices are obviously pointing to Jesus, right? Because his blood makes a way for us to be in the true holy of holies. Think about the laws, though, of like the Sabbath, right? The laws of the Sabbath point to Jesus because in Jesus we can rest from all of our works, right? How about the laws concerning Jubilee, right? That year when, when there be freedom. Jesus is the one who frees all slaves and cancels all debts. You think about the food laws point to Jesus because in Jesus, ethnic borders are broken down and we're able to sit down and eat with one another in Christ. You think about the the, uh, the laws about bodily discharges and leprosy. Let's point to Jesus, right? And that he's the one that truly makes us clean, right? Sin makes us unclean. He made us clean. I could go on and on. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, there's a way in which to look at all these laws and see them being fulfilled in Christ. In the law, Moses shows us not just our need for Christ, he actually shows us Christ. It's amazing. In the law, Moses shows us Christ. So much so that Jesus said this to the Jewish leaders of his time. He said this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Isn't that amazing? He says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe mine? There was one place where Moses actually predicted a prophet to come who would be greater than him that points to Christ. But that's not all he's talking about. It's his entire ministry points to Jesus. He was faithful in all God's house as a servant, testifying to the things that would be spoken of later. This passage shows us the unity of Scripture in another way, too. It's the unity of God's one people. Old Testament through New Testament on today. God has one house, not two. Jesus has one house, not two. The house that Moses was a servant in is the same house that these New Testament believers were in. You see that in verse 6. He says, and we are his house. He's saying that the, the house that Moses was a minister in is the same house we're a part of. God has one people from the beginning to the end. Old Testament through the New Testament to now. Because some people make it sound like Jesus has two houses. He's got an Israel house and he's got a church house. But Jesus has been building one house all along. All people saved by grace through faith, saved through believing in him, some looking forward to him, us looking back to what he's done. But God has one people. He has one body, Ephesians 2 says. He has one olive tree, Romans 11 says. He has one bride, Ephesians 5. There's one house, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, and you. And I'll show you. Check this out. Galatians 3.28 says this about you. If you are Christ, how many of you guys are Christ? Not that you are Christ. You're in Christ. How many of you are Christ? Okay. Yeah, there's actually more. Um, there's refusal to raise hands, which I assume that this was persecution, and I came up here with a gun, and I said, hey, if you follow Jesus, raise your hand. You'd probably raise it then. You just don't raise it in church for some reason. There's actually more Christians in here than you think. 
Does it seem like a half, maybe? Or a quarter? It was a low amount. Anyway, uh, so for those of you that are in Christ that aren't raising your hand, listen to this text about you. But you will stand up for him if it comes to that, right? You were just not wanting to raise right now, right? Right? Okay. You deny me before, man. You're not doing that. You just don't want to raise your hand. Just ask again. No, I'm just, just ask again. How many of you guys are in Christ? Okay, that's cool. That's cool. I don't know if things will get bad, but we should prepare for it. So, and I'm glad you can laugh about persecution. That's good. That's healthy. We laugh at it. That's actually later in the message. Okay, if you're in Christ, listen to this passage. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Isn't that cool? That you're adopted children of Abraham. If you are in Christ, you are a part of that promise. Abraham was promised that, that from him would be you know, descendants that no one can number, like the stars in the sky. And that's you, right? Your heirs according to the promise. As a child of Abraham, that whole Old Testament story, when you read about it and you think, oh, this isn't relevant to me or whatever, that's actually your family history. We're going to see that later when we look at Hebrews 11 and the hall of faith. The whole implication is these are your people. These are your people that went before. These are your people. Even if you're not Jewish, you're, you're, you're a child of Abraham if you're in Christ. So when you study Old Testament history, when you study church history, you're studying one family genealogy. I don't know if any of you guys are into that, studying your genealogy. This is your spiritual genealogy, right? You're studying the one house Jesus has been building. When you give yourself to this local church, you're giving yourself to build up the same house that Moses ministered in. Isn't that amazing? The house that Jesus has been building for thousands of years. You get to be a faithful servant in God's house like Moses was. The church doesn't replace Old Testament Israel. It's a continuation of it. Like, like a flower comes from a bud or like a, a butterfly comes from a caterpillar. This is the, the latest development of his house. He's, he's building out his house as he includes people from every tribe and nation and language and people. Super beautiful. Super amazing. Over millennia, Jesus is taking his sovereign blueprints and he's like, okay, now we're going to take China and we're going to go there and we're going to go here and we're going to go there and we're going to collect and we're going to build my house. It's really amazing when you guys look back on it, isn't it? You think about it, it's going pretty well. Jesus' building project, I don't know if you guys know. Some of you guys are down on it. You're like, well, you know, things are rough. Things are rough here. It's going really well. You guys realize it's going really well? I mean, it started with like an infertile couple, elderly infertile couple in Ur. And it's like all over the world now. It's kind of blown up. I don't know if you guys have noticed. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Every tribe and nation and language and people. I mean, look at what Jesus is doing. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's unstoppable. And here's what the text says. All glory goes to Jesus the builder, right? All glory goes to Jesus the builder. Amen. And verse 6 says, And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Notice that's a conditional statement. What it's saying is, is that those who are truly a part of Jesus' house will hold fast to Jesus until the end. Those who don't hold fast to Jesus in the end, we're not a part of his house. The importance of this text in the original context, he's telling these Jewish believers that if they don't persevere in following Jesus, if they were to kind of leave Jesus and try to, quote, go back to Moses, go back to Judaism, if they were to leave Jesus, then they're not really a part of God's house. They're not really a part of the house Jesus is building. They're not really a part of the house Moses served in, right? There is no 
religion of Moses to return to because Moses was always working for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He was always working for Jesus. And so he pleads with him later in chapter 10. He says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And I just want to camp on this for just a little bit of time, not very long. What kind of faith holds fast into the end? Because I noticed something in, chap- in verse 6 here, that there's a kind of attitude to this faith that holds fast to the end. Let me read it for you. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is really interesting. The kind of faith that lasts, the kind of faith that makes it to the end, is a faith that includes confidence and boasting. By the way, this is one place where he sounds like Paul, even though it's probably not. Boasting. Isn't that cool? Confidence and boasting. I just think, does our faith feel like confidence and boasting? It's not confidence in ourselves, it's confidence in Christ. So I just want to like think about this with you this morning. So how confident in Christ are you this morning? How confident are you in Christ? It's a measure of faith, right? How confident, and I'm not saying how confident are you in yourself. I'm saying, how confident this morning are you in Christ? Let me ask you a few things. How confident are you that he really is the Messiah God sent? Really confident? It's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, you look at like the prophecies and all the things he fulfilled. There's no other explanation, right? Let me ask you this. How confident are you that he is the God of the Old Testament? I feel super confident. You're a 10 out of 10? Yeah, I didn't even give you a scale, but he's like, it's a 10. The scale is out of 90. No, I'm just kidding. Um, He's 10. He's like, yes, he's the God of the Old Testament. You're confident about that. How confident you are that Jesus was perfect, sinless. Super confident, right? Like, super confident. I don't see any problems with this, this person at all. How confident are you that he died and rose again to put away your sin? Super confident, right? Notice that all this is confidence in Jesus, not yourself. And also notice it's actually pretty easy to be confident in Jesus. He's like exactly the place to put your confidence, right? Like it's actually really easy to be confident in Jesus. Just look at him. That's why the book of Hebrews is like, look at him, look at him. You can be confident in him, right? And faith looks like confidence, confidence in Christ. Faith also looks like boasting. I think this is fun. Boasting, bragging, you know, we brag about him. Not boasting in ourselves, but boasting in Jesus. It says boasting in our hope. Now, when we boast in our hope, there's two ways to look at this, and I want to make sure you're thinking the right way. It's not boasting in how much hope you have, okay? Because that's a subjective sense, and, you know, you may not be great at that. So it's not boasting in how much hope you have. It's boasting in how great a hope he is, okay? Do you see the difference? One's like a subjective sense of how much hope I have. I'm going to boast about that. You're not going to boast about that because that goes up and down. I wake up, I've got none, you know? Like it needs to build up in the next, you know, first hour of the day, right? It's about boasting in the kind of hope Jesus is. Jesus is a certain hope. Unfortunately, the word hope is now a synonym for uncertainty in our culture, right? Like, are you coming? I hope so. That's basically a no, you know? So it's weird, you know, that hope has come to mean the opposite, like literally, right? I literally went up in flames. It's like, well, you're using the word wrong, but whatever, I get it. Hope in our culture has become like a synonym for uncertainty. Hope biblically is that it's, it's rock solid. There's, there's no reason to be uncertain about Jesus. 
You might be uncertain about Jesus, but that's not because there's a reason to be uncertain about Jesus. There is no good reason to be uncertain about Jesus. Jesus is an absolutely certain hope. Isn't that amazing? He is an absolutely certain hope. You know, we know we can be saved by him because he promised it. And I don't know who you're willing to take promises from. Jesus is top of the list. Jesus promised, you trust in me, you will be saved. Your sins are forgiven. You are clean. You are mine. You're a child of God, right? Like, okay, so this is a certain hope because Jesus promised it. And he is completely trustworthy in his promises. And Jesus completely accomplishes it. And he was utterly successful in his sacrifice. Okay? This is why Jesus is a certain hope. He made the promise. We can totally trust him. And he accomplished it, and he was entirely successful. Guys, we've got to learn, I think this text tells us, we've got to learn to boast in our hope a little bit more, a lot more. We need a certain kind of confidence in Jesus, a certain kind of boasting in him. I love Luther's counsel about, you know, boasting at the devil. You know, when the devil tries to condemn you, you know, this is what Luther said. Luther said, when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction for all my sin. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, I'll be also. That's boasting in hope. You know? Isn't that amazing? It's boasting in Jesus. To the devil, we can boast. You can't condemn me. You're the one that's condemned. He knows his time is short, right? He's the one that's condemned. We're not afraid. He should be afraid. To death we boast with Paul. Where is your stinger? Jesus has removed it. To persecutors, we say, I don't fear you. Jesus will vindicate me. To shame, we can boast. Why should I be ashamed? Jesus is not ashamed of me. Right? You can boast back at shame. You can boast at covetousness when it tempts you. What exactly do you have to offer that I don't already have in Jesus? All things are mine in him. Right? We can boast to lust. What pleasures are you offering that I don't have in Jesus? He's fullness of joy. And you can boast to your anger. Jesus is the perfect judge. I don't need your fake justice. That's what anger is, right? Guys, we've got to learn to boast in Jesus. Jesus is worth bragging about. You know, Jesus stands with you as your redeemer. Some boldness is in order, right? Consider Jesus, hold fast to him, and let's brag about him a bit, Right? He's worthy of boasting in. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the sense you've given us of the certainty of our hope in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that that would stick. That would stick to our souls. That would stick to our hearts. Lord, that we would have that confidence you speak of that is so appropriate for the, the people we are, for those who have been made holy in Jesus those of us brothers and sisters of Jesus, those of us with a heavenly calling. And Lord, we pray when that fades that we would obey this text and consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's better. He's better. Lord, send us out. Send us out bold. Send us out with the right kind of humble confidence in the gospel. Send us out with the right kind of bragging bragging about Jesus, bragging about how good he is. People like us have a hope like this, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.